Welcome to Journeys of Teaching. I'm Aaron R. Gearhart. This week, we will explore the journey of Mrs. Deborah Croson, a retired middle grades and high school English language arts teacher who worked in the Illinois public school system. Deb received a bachelor's degree from Northern Illinois University. Mrs. Croson's family and my family have known each other for over 30 years as my father works for her husband's company. Her narrative as a retired teacher was of interest to me, and we enjoyed a great virtual conversation in February 2021 during a particularly frigid winter in the Midwest compared to the mild one I was enjoying in the Southeast. I've been FaceTiming my daughter calls my mom to read books to her over FaceTime like several times a week. And so they'll show us what it's looking like there. And I I miss a lot of things about the Midwest. That's not one of them at you all. Do, you will not miss the cold. It's supposed to get really quite chilly. Yeah. <laughs> That's an understatement um, tomorrow and Sunday. So oh, it's there's like a snap that's coming. I, I looked at the map of it recently, and I think we're just on the fringe of it. Like we've been getting a frost here in the mornings. But right now I took my coat off before I came in because it's in like the 50s outside right now. Did you really? I'm <laughs> envious. Oh, well, it's yeah, I like the snow and it's it's really beautiful. We've had gorgeous rime frost and hoar frost. But oh, my goodness. Oh, and you're. Your father, I know, has photographed some of those. I actually spent a total of 11 years, um, uh, basically 10 of those at Dakota, Mm -hmm. and that was really the only place I taught. But halfway through my career at Dakota, I decided I wanted to teach overseas. So I actually taught six months in Bogota, Colombia at a private school. And that was very exciting. And my administration at Dakota were very understanding. They gave me a year's leave of absence. And then I came back um, because they knew it would be a good experience. So, And do you speak Spanish? I I speak some Spanish. I've had mm, three years of high school Spanish. I had two semesters in college. I, I knew enough to get along on the street. But these private schools in many of these countries, the curriculum is basically geared on U.S. standards, and they want often, well, English-speaking or American teachers. And most of these kids basically were going to go on to either European or American universities. I taught high school, but my school was K through 12. So I I taught American literature in Columbia just as I would here. On this episode, we will hear Deb's stories about connecting with students through written compositions and helping students see the authentic purpose of developing their writing and communication skills. On the following three episodes, Deb will share stories about realizing how students learn in different ways, reflections on time and her decision to retire from teaching, and the inspiration she draws from her father. Each episode will feature snippets from two short stories that Deb wrote and agreed to share in this podcast series. Information about them and links to the full text of each are included in the episode description. Deb taught in Dakota, Illinois, which she described primarily as a rural farming community. She grew up in that lifestyle too, as her father was a farmer. I will start by reading aloud part of Deb's short story titled, My Life as an English Teacher. 
and then transitioned to portions of my conversation with Deb about how she connected with and empowered students by engaging with them about their written compositions, including helping them view writing and language arts as authentic practices relevant to their present and future. The last hour of the day, eighth hour, was the worst. Although it was my smallest class, it was filled with sophomore boys who could not give a rip about Romeo and Juliet, but thought about sex nearly every seven seconds. They managed to make sexual connotations out of grammar, especially when I would carefully explain the difference between lie and lay. I learned to write on the blackboard with my neck turned at a 90 degree angle for fear of spitwads being flung like confetti on the blackboard. Of course, this only added to neck strain at the end of the day. Four or five of these boys were true behavior problems. Today we use the innocuous term ADD or attention deficit disorder. But all I knew was that if I couldn't get these kids under control, my career as an English teacher would be over by Christmas. Upon more reflection, I thought this might not be such a bad holiday gift. It was always a delicate dance, that of an English teacher. If one idea or teaching method would work great in one class, it might bomb in the next class, even if it was the same age and level of ability. I learned to wing it, as we say in the profession, scrapping an entire day's lesson plan if I felt I was losing the student's interest. There were days when I felt like I was slowly settling to the bottom of the ocean. I'll never forget the day Mr. Broderick, the principal, slipped into the back of the classroom to evaluate my teaching methods. Two-thirds of the class was unaware he was sitting in the back of the classroom. These upper-level juniors were enrolled in my American literature class, and we were discussing the first four chapters of Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. The students struggled with the writing style, but were intrigued with the fact that Hester Prynne had just been released from jail with an illegitimate child cradled in her arms. Ian Beckman raised his hand and inquired, I thought they had birth control back then. I mean, didn't they have sheepskins that they use for condoms? He said with some disgust. The class grew quiet and a few snickers emanated from the back of the room. I tried to explain the puritanical setting of the story, why adultery was considered a heinous crime, and finally revealed that birth control methods were quite limited. Jenny Taylor, a studious shy student, piped up and said, I think that Hester was a lonely woman living in a rigid society who wasn't thinking about the risk of getting pregnant. I mean, who thinks about birth control in the heat of a passionate moment? I smiled at her, grateful for her more direct response than my own academic attempt. Our discussion continued in a lively manner until the bell rang. When the students filed out the door, some of them were still discussing the paternity of Hester's baby. When Mr. Broderick came up to my desk, he had a serious look on his face. I wondered how soon I might be packing up my lesson plans and pursuing a career in the business world. He simply said, I'll be scheduling you next week for a follow-up interview for this impromptu evaluation. Then he added, this was simply one of the best classes I've ever had the pleasure of observing. I'm curious though, what were the birth control methods available at that time? I glanced at him and quickly said, I guess I'll have to research that, Mr. Broderick, and report back to you next week. So, so I guess by growing up on a farm, then when I got the job at a school that was comprised of basically farming community 
it was pretty easy for me to understand these kids. You knew that culture. You lived it. Of course I did. And I still remember. I still remember uh, about five years after I taught at Dakota, I had an eighth grade boy, tall, six feet. And his name was Jim. And I had had his four other siblings. They were all very good athletically. They were very good academically. Jim, not so much. He was a good athlete. Mm -hmm. But but I gave my students a, a short essay assignment. And I still remember his first statement. And I thought it was brilliant. I grew up in a small, narrow world with few ways out. And that just knocked, I still remember that. And it's I just very knocked, striking, yeah. And so I thought, oh, wow. It gave me an insight into this boy who was 13. He was living in the shadow of his brothers and sisters. So I grew up in a small, narrow world with few ways out. And I kept thinking, wow, that can mean a lot. It means growing up on a farm. It can mean a lot of things. So somehow I got off on that tangent. No, I, that's a that's such an interesting story. I <clears throat> did. Did you see your role? as a teacher to those children like him, for example, as a way to open up possibilities so he didn't feel confined or stuck in a specific trajectory? Oh, absolutely. If, yeah. if I had a chance to talk to a student alone and individually, then yes, I, I would pursue that. Because that little statement that he wrote in that composition, his opening line, opened up such a revelation to me and maybe where he was coming from. Mm -hmm. So that's the great thing about reading students' essays, even though it's a nightmare to correct. It, it gives you insights into their world. And that's the other thing that I think is interesting. I find teaching, writing really, really difficult. And in the end, I still think some people have a knack for language and know how to express themselves. I can teach grammar. I can teach organization and essays. But in the end, it comes down to, for lack of a better word, having a knack for how to place your words in, a, in an expressive way. Yeah, I and I think there's something to be said with allowing them to write about what's authentic to them. I was just, I had a conversation with um, a friend of mine that teaches in this, he taught in the South side of Chicago and now he's in the suburbs about that and how he had similar, he had similar stories that the ones you just shared about how he learned about his students' experiences and then allowing them to tap into that and work through things through writing that authenticity sometimes motivated them to work on the craft in ways that like, if you just assigned a very derivative prompt, wouldn't. Exactly. And and you, you mentioned that word. I think that we as teachers need to lend that voice of authenticity in the microcosm of the classroom. Yeah. And that's all we can do. It, as I mentioned in the one essay, I, it was a hard lesson for me to realize that I, I couldn't rescue these kids or save them outside of the classroom. I, but what I could do is allow them 
to express themselves in a lot of different ways, whether it's through speech, whether it's through writing, whether it's through having a discussion, let's say about a short story. And, And of course, in the end, that's what I love to do. I loved literary analysis and, and that was probably my, um, forte. Kind of having that, or I guess maybe earning their respect to where they're going to buy what you're selling type of a thing. There's definitely little, little stories in this longer narrative that you've written towards that. Um, can you kind of revisit maybe one or two of those experiences where you had kind of breakthroughs in the classroom and did that, I'd have to really read it more carefully. Did that occur more during your first year? Or did that take even more time than that where you felt that? Oh, I, I think it, for me, um, it took me, I would say it took me two years and into my third year before I learned how to relax mm-hmm. and be more flexible and not go off on a tangent if let's say I had a student who was persistently um, a behavior problem you know and those are the things you can't teach in the classroom I mean educators can't teach to first year students yeah you you know that's just something you develop and you know some people are better at it than others. I, I suppose I was probably too rigid in the first couple of years. You know, I, I'm a person who follows the rules, <laughs> again, from my father. Well, that's what I was going to say. It sounds just like on the farm, we do the work because the work needs done. Whereas in a school setting, it's got to... <laughs> I'm trying to think of how it's got to be made relevant to them. Whereas like farming, it's like we do the work so that we have means. Yes. And that's, exactly. that's, that's it. Whereas in school, maybe it's a little lower risk than that. I, I don't know if I'm framing it the right way, but sure. I can tell you know what sure. I mean. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, I think one example I, I mentioned with a, you know, a student for instance, who questioned, questioned why in the world do we have to, um, learn grammar, mm-hmm. you know, why do I have to write a decently written, organized composition? What, how in the world am I going to use this in my later life? And my response to him was, because I actually, I was getting annoyed. <laughs> and so I, I reacted somewhat in a little bit of anger, but I was, I was genuinely reacting And I told him what I really believed. And that is, okay, you know what? Maybe you don't have to learn this if you want to flip hamburgers at Wendy's for the rest of your life. (laughs) I specifically remember reading that part of the story. That's why I'm laughing. And and my response was just immediate, almost without thinking. And, but I, but I believed it. It's like, well, maybe you don't need to learn this, but if you want to have a better position in life, yes, you do need to learn how to speak properly and be able to express yourself. It's not about you somewhere. It's not like a necessity, but it's an, it's a form of affording yourself opportunity. I suppose. That's right. Yeah. That's. And we all learn that lesson at different moments in our life. And some of us learn it later than others. And I think 
if as teachers, we can make that more relatable and less so like school being a matter of compliance, I think maybe students would buy in more. Yes. And yes. it wouldn't be such like a battle, so to speak. <laughs> At the end of the day, students will remember the connections they made with their teacher and each other, not necessarily the specific content or minutia of what is detailed in state learning standards. That is not to say these aren't important parts of the work of a teacher, but we must connect with students on an individual level, ensuring that they know they are cared for and what they have to contribute matters. We will continue to explore Deb's narrative of teaching over the next three episodes of Journeys of Teaching. My contact information is in the episode description. This is Journeys of Teaching. I am Aaron R. Gearhart, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.